So this here is Avicenna or Ibn Sina, who is one of the most famous um, is, uh, Islamic philosophers of the classical period. And he's shown in this illumination from the 14th century as sitting in a seat of the magister, the teacher, the professor at the University of Paris, and lecturing to all of the students at the University of Paris. Now, this is a, a fictitious sort of presentation. Avicenna never lectured at the University of Paris. In fact, he died long before the university was founded. Um, but the illuminator is tracking in this manuscriptal illumination the fact that Avicenna's influence at the University of Paris was so great that in a way we could almost imagine him as living on in the instruction that was given to the students at the university. Um, and Avicenna is probably one of the most brilliant minds anywhere in the history of philosophy. He's up there with Plato and Aristotle. And the translation of Avicenna is probably one of the most important things that ever happened in the history of Western philosophy. It completely changed the way that philosophy was done in Northern Europe. Um, so Christian medieval philosophy, as we know it today, if you recognize the names of Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas, Duns, Scotus, William of Ockham, um, this body of work is radically shaped by the transmission of texts, ideas, and trans uh, traditions of thought from the Muslim world, including Avicenna, but also other people who we'll be talking about tonight. Um, now, so I know that in the core courses in Colombia, when you read for the medieval philosophy component, you're reading sources from both the Muslim and the Christian medieval tradition. And what I wanted to do is just give you a brief glimpse of the story of how knowledge is transmitted. So a kind of transmission story from Muslim scholars to European medieval scholars. And it's a really fascinating kind of detective story that's been put together over, over the last uh, period of 50 years uh, as we sort of come to understand better how the transmission happened. And so that's going to be the first part of the talk. And I'm going to warn that this is a very complicated and interesting and multifaceted historical uh, sort of um, account. I can't give you the whole picture. I can just give you a kind of overview, um, but it'll at least give you a taste for the thing. And then uh, in the second half of the talk, I'm going to provide a case study of transmission from the Andalusian Muslim philosopher named Ibn Rushd or Averroes, um, and a particular idea from his thought that shows up in the thought of Thomas Aquinas, um, the Christian scholastic thinker, and continues, in fact, to influence Christian theology today. So we'll have a kind of historical narrative followed by some philosophical stuff. All right. So one of the stereotypes that, um, oh, uh -huh, here we go, my map. One of the stereotypes that um, many people are familiar with about European medieval philosophy is that it's all just a rehashing of Aristotle. And no less than the great medieval historian R.A. Marcus, who died in 2010, wrote in 1961 this common thought. Um, he said, insofar as St. Thomas had a philosophy, and this is, I think, a bad way to talk, it was simply Aristotle's. The adventure of discovering what Aristotle thought and of disentangling it from the distortions of his various Arabic interpreters was exciting enough. There was no need to add to it, to criticize it, or to develop it in any major way. It's again from an article in 1961. And almost every single word of this quote is fiction. 
Um, there's the idea that medieval philosophy is not really philosophy. There's the idea that it's a mere repetition of Aristotle. There's the idea that the contribution of the Islamic world is to distort the pure Aristotelian text and that Christian medieval thinkers were engaged in rescuing and purifying that text. Um, the idea that neither Islamic nor Christian thinkers developed any original thought of their own during the medieval period. All of this is just a kind of fairy tale. But unfortunately, it's a very enduring fairy tale. It arose in the Renaissance, which hated everything medieval with the fire of a thousand suns. Um, in just the way that any rebellious teenager just absolutely hates everything that had to do with their parents for no particular reason. Um, and this fiction has been with us ever since even into quite recent scholarship. It's one of the reasons why there's a widespread academic dismissal of medieval Christian thought that has been very hard to eradicate. And now I think it's, it's starting to become much more standard to recognize that real philosophy is being done in the medieval period, but it's been a long, slow process. And it's also this, uh, this, this sort of Renaissance fairy tale is also responsible for huge misconceptions about what philosophy in the Arabic world looks like. Um, in the Islamic world more broadly, and how it influences philosophy in Christian Europe during the Middle Ages. And I want to show you another image that gives you a kind of illustration of how this fiction is already presented in art um, that we're still dealing with today. So you see here the figure of, this is actually, this, this, so this is Benozzo Gozzoli, this is the 15th century, it's hanging in the Louvre, um, when you look at this photo, you can see a picture photo. You can see um, Thomas Aquinas here seated in triumph. It's called, in fact, the triumph of Thomas Aquinas. And under the feet of Thomas Aquinas in this supine position is no less than the philosopher Averroes, the Andalusian philosopher that we're going to be, a uh, Muslim philosopher that we're going to be looking at later. And you see that he's in a kind of position of being crushed. Um, let's see here this um, by a very or by Aquinas who is triumphing over his errors um, he died uh, just only 25 years before Aquinas was born in fact so this is a this is a widespread image I'm, I'm sorry to say that it is found all over the covers of books that are dedicated to Thomas Aquinas and it perpetuates the idea that um, Muslim philosophy was riddled with error and that Aquinas's uh, main project or part of his main project was purifying uh, philosoph these uh, thoughts, uh, the, the philosophical errors that were introduced by Muslim philosophers. Now, of course, Aquinas is, is known for strong criticisms of some of Averroes' position, but what's being obscured here is the amount of influence and the, in fact, vast amount of philosophical material that Aquinas inherits from Averroes and makes his own, and that shapes the core features of, of uh, Aquinas' thought as we understand it now. Um, so this is a myth that we're going to be trying to be busting in the first part of the talk. So let's go back to that map. Um, and let's go, let's go back to late antiquity. And think about the question, if you want to learn about Plato and Aristotle in late antiquity, where are you going to go? Um, well, you have to go where the manuscripts are, you have to go where the teachers are. And in the world of late, the late antiquity, that's two main places, the school in Athens and in Alexandria here in Egypt. Um, so there are two main centers here. 
Now, if we fast forward 700 years or so to the high Middle Ages, the uh, sort of early part of the scholastic movement in the 13th century, we move up to Paris here, the University of Paris, where uh, Thomas Aquinas studied and where he eventually teaches. Um, and people like Albert the Great, Thomas Aquinas are at the University of Paris carrying on the intellectual traditions that were originally being taught here in Athens and Alexandria. And so we might ask ourselves, how did this philosophical tradition of reading and reflecting on the ideas of Plato and Aristotle, how does it get from Athens and Alexandria up to the University of Paris? When I ask people that, often they just sort of assume that, well, Greece is part of Europe and France is part of Europe and the texts were just always there and then maybe they kind of went this way and eventually ended up in Paris. And that's a mistake. In fact, what happened is that the philosophical traditions migrated in this direction into what's now the Middle East, uh, what was then Persia, North Africa, and came up to Paris this way. And they didn't do that until the 12th century. Um, so the knowledge is basically moving from the Islamic world, from, from the Greek world into the Islamic world, and then from the Islamic world up into Northern Europe um, in time for Thomas Aquinas to start assimilating some of this material and his contemporaries. So let's see how that worked. Um, so let's focus on the year 750. That's the important year for us here. In the year 750, the Sunni Arab-centered Umayyad dynasty collapsed. It was conquered by uh, what then be what became known as the Abbasid dynasty, which lasted until 1282. Um, the Abbasid dynasty was Persian-influenced and Shia. And um, there's, there's a lot of interesting sort of historical dynamics about this particular power shift. But what you, what you have in, in the Umay at the end of the Umayyad dynasty is a map that roughly looks like this. You can see that by this point, um, the Umayyad Caliphate has conquered uh, Persia. It's conquered the entire Arabian Peninsula and the northern part of Africa, and then up into, um, up into Spain and Portugal into what was then called Andalusia. Um, now, oops, sorry. The, in 750, when the Abbasids conquered, the entire Umayyad dynasty was slaughtered, um, except for one prince whose name was Abd al-Rahman. Uh, he was quite young. And he happened to escape. And with the help of allies in Northern Africa, he escaped up to Cordoba. And we're going to come back to him in a minute because he became this, this little historical tidbit becomes very important. In the meantime, the conquerors, the Abbasids, um, made a crucial decision. They decided to move the capital of, the, of the, their, their empire to a place whose name you will recognize. Originally, it had been in Damascus. They decided to move it to uh, Baghdad. And their goal was, since the previous, the, the previous rulers had had this sort of program of military expansion, the Abbasid um, dynasty was known for sort of shifting the emphasis from military rule to cultural dominance. And so what they intended was that Baghdad was going to be a center of 
cultural, uh, a kind of cultural magnet for the whole world. And they were going to have the best literature and the best poetry and the best philosophy. Um, and people were going to come from all over the world to visit this center of learning. And um, so one of the first things that they did was they built a library. This is an old map uh, of the city of Baghdad as we think it appeared between 767 and 912. Um, in the round city. And you can see here a kind of um, illustration here that's depicting the library with the, the various scrolls and volumes. And around the library, you see, it's very important. If you want to draw scholars in the ancient world, you have to have books. This is very important. And so they knew you put the books there, the scholars will come. The scholars came. And one of the things that grew up around the library was a state-sponsored translation effort involving educated Jews, Christians, and Muslims who were translating a large body of philosophical and scientific work out of Greek into Syriac as an intermediate language and then out of Syriac into um, Arabic. And some of the material that they translated were the works of Plato, the works of Aristotle, various Neoplatonic um, commentaries. So there's a whole body of philosophical knowledge that's being translated into Arabic at that time and then being discussed in these kind of intellectual circles that are forming around this, um, this material that's now available in Arabic. So by the ninth century, in fact, Baghdad would become one of the most important cultural centers of the world. For They were known particularly for medicine, astronomy, mathematics, optics, and then of course philosophy, which is the thing that we're interested in right now. And in philosophy, this was the beginning of an intellectual trend known as falsafa, which is the Arabicization of the Greek philosophia. And it's one of the intellectual traditions in the Muslim world. So there's a kind of mistake sometimes that people make of associating falsafa with the entirety of the Islamic philosophical tradition. And that's not true. It's one strain in a very rich and, uh, and multi-layered um, tradition of philosophizing in the, in the Islamic world. Now, the key figures that emerge out of this intellectual milieu, the one of the first is known as Al-Kindi, who died in 866, um, whose work was centered in Baghdad. And he was very important in particular for, um, for his emphasis on unity. He saw that in fact, there was a very important strain of thought in Greek, in late Greek Neoplatonism, um, emphasizing the unity of the first cause of the universe. And he saw that as being a philosophical resource that Muslims could use in thinking about the one God. Um, and so you can see here his attitude. He's convincing his contemporaries we should have great gratitude to the philosophers of the Greeks who have contributed even a little of the truth, for they shared with us the fruits of our thought and facilitated our study of the true hidden essences. Another figure that's living at the time is Al-Farabi, um, who became a very important commentator on Aristotle and advanced greatly the sort of Neoplatonizing strain of Aristotelian commentary in Arabic. Um, was like almost the, the father of an entire school of reading Aristotle. Um, and then, of course, the great Ibn Sina or Avasana that I mentioned at the beginning. He's born in Persia, operates in, uh, largely in what's now Iran and Uzbekistan. Um, he was known as a physician and a philosopher. He also tells you how terribly handsome he is and how he was smarter than all of his teachers. So he's, he is quite a character 
in the history of philosophy for sure. But he his his confidence in himself, I can't say I can't speak to his handsomeness. We don't really have any pictures of him, but his um intellectual prowess is certainly borne out by his writing. Now, we're not going to talk about those figures. Um, I just want to sort of give you a sense of the intellectual milieu here. And what's really important to recognize is we already have a different picture from this sort of standard that we have, uh, the, the sort of stereotype that we have that what Muslim thinkers are doing are just sort of picking up these ancient texts and just sort of rehashing and commenting on them and either getting them right or getting them wrong. What actually happens when new sources enter a new tradition is not a kind of repetition. I think we should think of this more like ideas putting down roots and growing in a new soil. And so the various strands of thought from the Greek world of late antiquity meet and intertwine with various Islamic theological concerns, juridical traditions, um, and whole new ideas develop. This becomes a kind of universe unto itself. Um, and it's a kind of inheritor of the Greek tradition, this sort of falsafa movement, um, but really in a whole new, very distinctive way. Now, this is eventually what's going to, this body of knowledge and the tradition that develops out of it is eventually going to make its way up to Paris um, if for the 13th century. And so now we have to think about how it got here and that's, that's gonna take us to Averroes. So the translation movement uh, starts in the translation movement into Latin from Arabic into Latin starts in the 12th century. And from the early 12th century to the late 13th century, literally hundreds of texts were translated in from Arabic or Greek into Latin. And it's one of the scholarly mysteries that we have that we don't know why. We do not know why the translation movement started when it did and where it did. There's some hunches. I'll tell you some of the hunches. Um, but the kinds of texts are, that were translated are very important. They are Arabic and Greek works about optics, medicine, and astronomy, and then also books of philosophy. So the scientific body of work got translated earlier than the philosophical body. Um, one of the key locations in which the translation is, translations are taking place where the works of Aristotle were translated into Latin um, is in Constantinople, um, here, now Istanbul. However, what's sort of interesting is when the works of Aristotle were translated by James of Venice, they sort of seemed to, they fell into the Latin milieu without making all that much of a noise. They had some influence, but not as much as you might have thought. What really turbocharged this tradition as it moved into the university milieu at Paris is the translation movement that happened here in Toledo around the, uh, around the Cathedral of St. Mary of Toledo, sponsored by the Archbishop of Toledo. And this translation movement is from Arabic into Latin. And this is the one that provided European thinkers with an entire philosophical tradition. So questions to ask, puzzles to consider, distinctions that had already been made. So you can see that in fact, it's actually really hard to just pick up a text and read a text. You need to have a kind of community of learning to initiate you into the text. And that's the stuff that began to be translated in Toledo, commentaries, treatises, various sort of parts of this Islamic philosophical tradition and the thinkers that we've been talking about. And these are being translated into Latin at the time. So why Spain? Why is it happening right now? 
That is because of, if you look at the border here, um, the location of Toledo is here right on the edge of what is still Muslim lands here, part of the caliphate of the independent caliphate of Cordoba. Here's Cordoba. Okay, unfortunately, it didn't show up on the other map. Um, and now you remember that I told you that the last uh, member of the Umayyad family, when all of his family members are slaughtered in 750, escaped, uh, Abdurrahman, flees Baghdad from the Abbasids, goes to Cordoba and establishes an independent caliphate of Cordoba there. Well, as you can imagine, he really hated the Abbasids. And he really resented the fact that they were building Baghdad into this cultural center. And he thought, what better way to get my revenge than to make a better cultural center here in Cordoba instead. Um, the Caliphate of Cordoba, in fact, became a cultural rival to Baghdad, the home of its enemy dynasty. By 1000 AD, the population was 450,000 people. It was the largest city in Europe. Um, the key figures, oh, here's the, this is the uh, dome of the mosque in Cordoba, which is a just artistic masterpiece. It was an extremely wealthy city in the medieval period. Um, two of the most important philosophical figures that emerged in uh, Cordoba were Maimonides, whom you may have heard of, one of the most important figures in the medieval Jewish tradition, and Averroes who is, uh, simply became called by Latin thinkers, the commentator, because he was such an expert in developing and explaining the thought of Averroes that they sort of, they trusted him in a way more than any other writer in trying to understand what was going on in the text that they were reading of Averroes. And so we, you can see here uh, in this not great quality scan, is a something that was quite typical. You've got a manuscript of Aristotle's, com, uh, Aristotle's De Anima on the soul. And this in the large script is the text of Aristotle. Underneath that in the small script, that's the text of the commentary of Averroes. And so, oops, you can see that what they're reading is um, Aristotle together with Averroes. And again, this is this point that when you're learning some new material, you can't just pick up a text by yourself. You need an intellectual tradition to initiate you into that material. And Averroes is performing that very important function for Latin readers when they're getting this very difficult text that you just have no idea what to do with. Um, so Cordoba, great sort of intellectual center. In 1147, the Almohads conquered Al-Andalus. So Al-Andalus is still this kind of... Um, area here. And they were known to oppress non-Muslim citizens very harshly. They had that reputation. And as they approached Cordoba, many Jews and Christians who had been living peaceably in that time uh, in Cordoba fled for the Christian area here, which is just across the border, Toledo, um, taking and the, the this is the speculation of how this whole translation movement got started. This is as far as we know right now, taking their libraries with them as they fled. Um, as this influx of people comes into Toledo and resettles there, now all of a sudden we have all of these books and manuscripts in this new place. And so the speculation goes, the Archbishop of Toledo sees the opportunity. He had a lot of people now suddenly living in this, this city that knew both languages, Arabic and Latin. And so he decides this is the perfect opportunity to get a kind to sponsor a kind of translation movement just in time for the founding of these new universities that are developing in Paris and Oxford, where there's a kind of app 
appetite for this learning. Um, so um, from there, that's, we don't know for sure if that's the reason, but for whatever reason, these books got translated. And then from there, they move up to Paris where they begin to circulate. Um, so that is right, they arrive right before Thomas Aquinas, who's one of our other figures of, of interest for, for tonight, uh, enrolls in his bachelor study at the University of Paris. Okay, so that's the kind of historical picture of how the knowledge gets from point A to point B, sort of growing and changing and developing into an entire tradition along the way. Um, and so now we can sort of change gears and do a little bit of philosophical thinking about what kinds of things Latin scholastics learned from Muslim philosophers as they were reading all of these new texts. So we're going to focus in on Thomas Aquinas, who's the Dominican friar who lived from 1225 to 1274 on your syllabus. And I just want to give you a brief kind of glimpse. We're going, to, we're going to focus in on one idea, but I just want to give you a brief glimpse of the sheer range of material that, um, that influences Aquinas' thought from the Islamic philosophical tradition. So arguments for God's existence. Um, this is huge. There's an enormous influence of Avicenna there. Um, arguments for the immateriality of the soul. A good deal of this, again, comes through Avicenna. Um, theories of what it means for God to be a creator. God is not a cause like other causes. He brings things into existence out of nothing with no prior potentiality. These ideas go all the way back to Al-Kindi. Um, the idea of God's intimate presence to us, the way in which some, something that so completely transcends the universe can also be um, at the same time absolutely present in all things. That's another idea that goes back to Al-Kindi that Aquinas picks up. He, he hasn't read Al-Kindi on this, but it then sort of travels through other permutations and eventually makes its way into Aquinas' thought. Um, the concept of angels as being sheer minds, just pure intellects, this is something that also comes out of the Islamic philosophical tradition through the Liberty Causes. Uh, the idea of how causation works in the natural world, um, and I won't go into that. Another really interesting one, theories of light how Aquinas thought light works and how it makes objects colored. He cites Avicenna and Averroes. These are his two important people there. The brain's role in processing sensory inf information. Um, Aristotle says very little about the brain and how it works and what parts of the brain are responsible for what kinds of mental activity. This is something that Islamic philosophical thinkers are really interested in, Farabi, Avicenna, Averroes, and the discussions that we find about the common sense and imagination in Thomas Aquinas, this is all taken out of the Islamic tradition. Um, very sophisticated theories of animal instinct, super interesting stuff, again. Um, and then how we abstract concepts like beauty or humanity. And um, this is, again, uh, important sort of developments that came out of the Islamic tradition. And all I've done here is sort of very quickly sketch the metaphysical and the uh, psychological or anthropological material, but we could have sort of similar analysis for ethics, for natural philosophy, um, 
for cosmology. So there's a lot of there's a lot of influence here, and people are literally digging up new references all the time. Aquinas names Avicenna and Averroes over a thousand times in the course of his writing, and those are just the times he names them. There are so many more cases of unnamed references, and again, we're just discovering this new ones every day. So what I wanted to focus on <coughs> is a particular idea. Um, that Aquinas uses Averroes for called the beatific vision. And um, what the reason I thought this would be kind of an interesting example of influence to pick out is that um, it's a case in which Aquinas is giving a philosophical answer to a theological problem and distinctively a Christian theological problem. And we might have thought um, well, okay, so he's using material from Muslim thinkers, so of course it's going to be philosophical material, but he's never going to let that go into the theological side of things. And this is a, this is a counterexample to that common assumption. Um, for Aquinas, the, the boundary between philosophy and theology is not the way that we think about it in a sort of post-enlightenment uh, framework. Philosophy supports theological reasoning. And um, he is perfectly happy and has no problem taking on uh, philosophical arguments from another religious tradition and using them to support his own theological endeavors. Um, so just a quick primer here. What is the concept of the beatific vision? This is in uh, Christian theology, the doctrine that the souls of the just, oops, sorry. The souls of the just in heaven see God face to face as he is. There's a direct encounter, not a veiled encounter or an indirect thought about, but face to face. This is the, the metaphor. So Aquinas is a theologian. So we're going, well, what does it mean to say face to face? What's a face to face knowledge? And he says, well, this has to be something experiential. It has to be an encounter with God in his real being without any intermediary in that. So no symbols, no interpretations. Um, no sort of anything that would distill God or make him more distant. It has to be just like two people talking to each other, that kind of closeness. All right. So that poses for Aquinas a philosophical problem. And Aquinas, is the, the problem is this, Aquinas' concept of God, his philosophical concept of God, the one that he gets from the Greek and Arabic philosophical tradition even, um, is that God is pure being, the actuality of all acts, the infinite intensity of being itself. So we see that there's going to be kind of a problem because we are finite minds, and then we have the actuality of all act, infinite being. Um, how can one thing, one of those sorts of things experience the other? What would it even mean to have an experience that crosses these kinds of ontological boundaries? So, um, in order to work that out, um, obviously Aquinas is going to have to say physical seeing is going to be off the table. You're not going to see God, see being itself with your eyeballs. Um, can you do it with mental seeing? Well, this is going to be kind of a problem because mental seeing, seeing with your mind for Aquinas, um, is going to require that your mind has to be able to encompass that thing in some way. 
But God is too bright, too big, too perfect for a finite mind to encompass. So he's got a real, pro real philosophical problem here. So what does Aquinas do? So he turns to our friend from Cordoba, Ibn Rush, or Averroes, because Averroes had actually dealt with a similar problem in his own philosophy. There's an ancient theory going back to Plato that says that the human being cannot be satisfied by something that's on the same level of being as ourselves. We can only be satisfied by something that exists on a higher plane of being. And Aristotle sort of hints at this at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics when he says that we have to strain as much as we are able to live a divine life, that it's somehow the living of the divine life that's the properly human perfection. Um, and so Averroes is dealing with this idea and he concludes that we need to be able to somehow, in order to be happy as human beings, we need to have an experience of a kind of cosmic mind and not necessarily God, but like a higher mind, a pure intellect, something that exists on another order beyond us. And so he asks the same question as Aquinas. Well, how, does, how do our limited human minds grasp what is higher than ourselves? And in order to explain this, he introduces two principles. First, he says that knowing is a transformation of the mind. That's a very important thing. Something changes in you when you know. It's not just putting yourself into a relationship with something, but it's a transformation of you when you know something. Then the second idea is that in whenever you learn something new, your mind is literally expanding. So it's continually acquiring new capacities. You start off with small amount of capacity and the more you learn, the more your mind grows in its power. Um, so his basic idea here is that, let me see if I put this, put this slide on. I did, okay. Um, his basic idea is that as, as you're learning, the things that you're learning about are transforming you. And every time you're transformed, now you've become more like reality. As you can, and the more like reality you become, the more your intellectual capacity grows. And eventually you get to the point at which your intellectual capacity has grown so that it is able to encompass something that at the beginning you were not able to encompass, namely a pure intellect. You've been transformed in that way. And this is a familiar idea. I mean, it sounds a little bit weird, but it is a familiar idea, I think, to anybody who plays a musical instrument. Because as you practice a musical instrument, your capacity to play grows. You start off with a capacity just to play twinkle, twinkle, little star. And then 15 years later, there you are playing, you know, Beethoven's seventh piano sonata. Um, and your capacity is actually expanded. And Averroes thinks that this is what's happening also with the human mind. The more you think, the more capacity that you get. And so what he says is that um, the human being at the pinnacle of its powers, once you've learned everything that there is to know about the natural world, you acquire a new capacity, a new disposition that lets you be transformed in a radically new way by being united to a cosmic intellect above you. So what does Aquinas say, what does Aquinas do with this idea? You can see how this is going to be really interesting and really useful to him philosophically. He takes on board Averroes' notion that knowing is a transformation of the mind. He takes on board Averroes' idea that uh, the mind's capacity can be expanded beyond what we naturally have. And then he adds something to it. He adds the idea that 
Um, although we can't develop this capacity by our own power, oops, we can't develop this new capacity by our own power the way Avera we thought we can. But what we can do is we can receive it as a gift from God. So God gives the mind a new superhuman capacity. We can track the language that he's borrowing from Averroes here. He uses the language of aliqua dispositio de novo, which is the, the phrase that he gets from Averroes, um, to be transformed by union with God himself. And so he says that something has to be added to human nature in order to make the experience of God possible, to grow our minds to the point at which we're able to be united completely with God. I think there's actually a fascinating little postscript to this story. If you go, this is how, how sort of influence travels through history. If you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was published, I think, about 20 years ago, and you go to the section on the beatific vision, you're going to find the following quote. Because of his transcendence, God cannot be seen as he is unless he himself opens up his mystery to human beings' immediate contemplation and gives us the capacity for it. Gives us the capacity. That's a reference to this idea from Aquinas, which goes back to exactly that formulation from Averroes. Um, so there's an echo of an idea here that goes all the way back to Cordoba, to, to um, Averroes. Okay, so let me conclude then. Um, I think what we see in this one example of Averroes' philosophical influence on Aquinas, it's literally one tiny example from hundreds that could be referenced, is how real transmission of thought works. Ideas are a living reality. Each new culture takes upon them almost like a cutting, like a, from a plant, and propagates them in its own soil and then grows something new. And this is very far from the idea of the relationship that we saw in the, in the image from the 15th century, Benozzo Gozzoli, where Aquinas crushes the head of Averroes, or in Marcus, where Aquinas is purging the interpretive errors of Arabic commentators. What we see here instead are two men from different cultures who are engaged in a common project of trying to understand reality. And then they're in some way in conversation across the space, the spatial distance and the temporal distance and the cultural distance and the religious distance that separates them. They're like craftsmen who are initiated into a set of tools and techniques by their predecessors, but they introduce developments and transformations of their own working in their different contexts with different materials. So this example is just a drop in the bucket. The scholars are continually unearthing more examples like this of the deep and wide ranging influence of the Islamic world on medieval Europe. And for the history of European philosophy, however, the conclusion is already clear. There would be no Thomas Aquinas without Averroes and no medieval scholasticism without Muslim philosophers. Thank you.